Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Kyle Parmelo, Director of Federal Projects at the Tax Foundation. Um, I'm going to be uh, moderating this today. Um, so each week, I guess the campaign seems to be getting uh, sort of sillier and sillier, and I think um, we haven't seen anything yet. So perhaps the likelihood of serious policy discussion will continue to fall over time. Um, but even though the candidates don't seem interested in it, we could still talk about it and um, learn a lot. And the people that follow tax policy closely have certainly been given the opportunity. Uh, most of the candidates, um, whether they're still in the race or um, have dropped out, have released some sort of plan to uh, reform the tax code. Um, it started with Senator Rubio with his joint project with Senator Mike Lee. After that, Senator Rand Paul released his plan. A couple months later, Jeb Bush, uh, followed by Donald Trump, Jindal, Santorum, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, Bernie Sanders, and Hillary Clinton has been releasing lots of d details of her plan to change the tax um, system or keep it about the same. Um, and for most of the part, these plans were all different. Uh, Marco Rubio proposed basically a progressive consumption tax with a large child tax credit. Rand Paul and Ted Cruz put forth variations on the same plan to replace the uh, tax code with this flat income tax with a value-added tax. Uh, Jeb Bush proposed a more traditional conservative tax reform, and Donald Trump just proposed huge across-the-board rate cuts. Um, Clinton and Sanders, of course, they both want to raise tax revenue, but Sanders, he wants 13 times as much. Um, and with the exception of John Kasich, we've been lucky enough to have a lot of uh, details on these plans. Uh, for example, most plans outlined how they changed the taxation of wages, capital gains, business income. And the, sort of the result of that is that both the Tax Foundation and the Tax Policy Center have been able to uh, model the impacts of these plans on the economy, different taxpayers, and revenues um, without having to ask too many questions of the candidates. Um, and generally on the Republican side, uh, the focus in tax policy has been fundamental tax reforms. They've proposed sweeping changes to the federal tax code uh, to encourage labor force participation uh, by reducing marginal rates. They also proposed reducing the corporate income tax and going to full expensing to encourage investment and discourage profit shifting. Uh, the Democrats have been less interested in fundamental reform and more interested in new programs, um, but the way that they got there and their plans are fundamentally different. Uh, Clinton wanted, only wants revenue from the very top, while Sanders was willing to say that everyone gets to pay something, but everyone gets a lot of new government spending. Um, and while these plans have very interesting proposals, one of the problems is, is that they're probably infeasible, um, and a lot of people have pointed out their problems with arithmetic and also uh, political viability. Uh, for example, Donald Trump's tax plan would cut taxes by about $12 trillion over a decade. That's about a quarter of all revenue. Um, and even accounting for macroeconomic feedbacks, you're still in the whole $10 trillion and require substantial cuts to federal revenue, something that would likely not happen. Um, and, of course, the politics of some of these plans is tricky as well. So besides just the arithmetic, um, some of these plans, for example, Ted Cruz's, go to this flat income tax. Well, the economics there are pretty straightforward. They want, <coughs> wants to reduce marginal tax rates, but um, the result is he gives about a 30% tax 
cut to the top 1%, that probably wouldn't sell very well. So given the political and numerical challenges with these plans, um, with some of these ref reform plans, um, uh, one wonders, of course, is there a better way to do tax reform that sort of balances this stuff? So today we're trying to answer that question. Jeffrey Anderson um, of the Hudson Institute has released an excellent tax plan called the Main Street Tax Plan. Um, and the way I see it, it's a plan that attempts to balance all these things, get some pro-growth stuff in there, some of the features that um, a lot of reformers want, but make sure that it pays attention to the politics and the arithmetic of, um, of fiscal policy. So today we have, uh, we're joined by four people to discuss this. Um, first person, uh, Alan Viard. Uh, he's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute where he studies federal tax and budget policy. He's also been a visiting scholar at the U.S. Department of of the Treasury's Office of Tax Analysis, a senior economist at the White House's Council of Economic Advisors, and a staff economist at the Joint Committee on Taxation of the U.S. Congress. Uh, while at AEI, uh, Viard is also taught public finance at um, my school, Georgetown University's uh, Public Policy Institute. Um, we have Eric Toder. Um, he's an institute fellow and co-director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute, where he oversees the modeling team and authors and directs research studies. Um, before joining Urban, he held a number of senior level positions in tax policy offices in the U.S. government and overseas, including service as Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Tax Analysis at the Department of Treasury, uh, Director of Research at the Internal Revenue Service, Deputy Assistant Director for the Office of Tax Analysis at the CBO and consultant to the New Zealand Treasury. Um, Henry Olson uh, is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center where he studies and provides commentary on American politics. His work focuses on how to address, consistent with conservative principles, the electoral challenges facing modern American conservatism. Uh, Mr. Olson has worked in senior executive positions at many center-right think tanks. Uh, he most recently served from 2006 to 2013 as vice president and director of the National Research Initiative at the American Enterprise. Institute. Um, he previously worked as Vice President of Programs at the Manhattan Institute and President of the Commonwealth Foundation. And right to my left, Jeffrey Anderson is a, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Uh, before moving to Hudson, a, uh, Anderson co-founded the 2017 project with William Crystal and ran it as Executive Director throughout its nearly two and a half year run. Um, from 08 to 09, Anderson was the, uh, was the senior speechwriter for Secretary Mike uh, Levitt at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. And from 2001 to 2007, he was a professor of political science at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, so the way this is going to work, I guess, is uh, uh, each panelist will speak for about 10 minutes. Um, and then after that, we will go into uh, some discussion. Um, and then I think it's open up to some audience questions afterwards. So take it away. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you all for coming today. Appreciate you taking the time to be here. As, as Kyle mentioned, the, uh, the presidential candidates have put out a lot of pro-growth tax plans, at least on the Republican side of the aisle. The problem with these plans is that all of them would benefit the top 1% more than they would benefit the typical American. And with just a couple of exceptions, all of them would, would balloon our already $19 trillion federal debt. And the exceptions are, are the plans that rely on a value-added tax, which poses its own 
potential problems <coughs> in the future. Ideally, I think tax reform should accomplish three main things. It should spur economic growth, uh, clearly benefit the typical American, and improve our fiscal situation rather than worsen it by helping us, specifically by helping to uh, helping us to grow our way out of debt rather than pushing us further into debt. According to the Tax Foundation's scoring, the Main Street Tax Plan would achieve all three of these goals. In terms of growth, it would increase growth by 7.6% above and beyond what the economy, the size of the economy would be in terms of the gross domestic product 10 years from now. That would be an increase in the size of the economy after 10 years of $2 trillion above and beyond what we would see if the plan were not to go into effect, according to the Tax Foundation scoring. And that's growth that's in the ballpark of the sort of growth that Ronald Reagan and John F. Kennedy's tax cuts generated. In terms of distribution, it would benefit the typical American more than twice as much as it would benefit the top 1%. Again, according to the Tax Foundation scoring, the biggest beneficiaries would be those right in the middle of the income spectrum. And in terms of the debt or, or fiscal matters, the plan would provide a $1.1 trillion tax cut and yet over 10 years would actually increase revenues by $679 billion, according to the Tax Foundation scoring, as a result of the taxes on the increased growth being greater than the lost revenue from the tax cuts themselves. So obviously in the first year there would be a decline in revenues, but over a 10-year period the plan would more than pay for itself. How would it do this? How would the plan achieve these goals? In terms of the growth provisions, they're pretty standard proposals. 20, a 25, lower the corporate tax rate to 25%, lower the highest marginal income tax rate to 33%, which would greatly help small businesses as well, and allow full expensing of all capital investments. In terms of distribution, there are two main proposals, two main provisions of the plan that, that allow it to be particularly beneficial to the median American. One is, or, or the typical American, one is that uh, it would eliminate the Medicare payroll tax entirely. This, I'll, I'll talk more about this in a minute, the elimination of the Medicare payroll tax, but it would, let me, for now, suffice it to say that it would provide a tax break for all tax break payers, and it would particularly be helpful to the working class and the working poor. The other key provision for making this a plan that really is good for Main Street, for the typical American, is that it would take the 25% tax bracket, the first quarter of it, and make it a 20% tax bracket. Right now, the highest, the biggest marginal rate increase in the entire tax code comes when people are going along and they hit to where they're just about, they're comfortably middle class or starting to get a, a toe or two into upper middle class status. And all of a sudden, they, after paying a 15% marginal income tax rate, they hit right up against the wall where they now have to pay a 25% marginal income tax rate. And I'll, I'll tell you that this provision, I can somewhat credit my brother-in-law, who is a working-class guy. He, he works a lot of hours. He works a lot of overtime. And he's found that working overtime is barely worth it because it pushes him into the 25% marginal tax bracket. And all of his income from that point forward is so heavily taxed that he sometimes wonders if it's even worth his while. And so I can credit him with uh, the inspiration for, for this particular provision. In terms of debt and fiscal matters, the key is simply to spur growth in an efficient way, to have tax cuts that are designed to promote growth and are not handouts. And so this plan would offer, again, referring to the Tax Foundation scoring, a, a great deal of bang for the buck. It would produce 7% growth in GDP uh, for every trillion dollars in tax cuts 
which is more than double what most of the plans would, would offer in terms of bang for the buck, and that's closely related to being fisc a fiscally responsible plan. In addition to these three core elements, the plan would eliminate the marriage penalty, which requires doing three things. It would do all three. It would eliminate the head of household filing status. It would stop income testing the child tax credit, and it would make couples tax brackets double the size of single tax brackets. Without doing all three of those things, there's going to be a marriage penalty in the tax code. One of the core principles of the plan is that almost everyone should pay something in income tax and April 15th should not be viewed as a payday by Americans. This is sort of a, uh, I suppose I'm channeling my inner Ben Carson here a little bit, but the, um, the notion that we should have more people paying income tax, not fewer, is, uh, is a, a core element of the plan. And, um, and the way that would come about is that the standard deduction would be slightly reduced, bringing more people onto the income tax rolls. Almost all the plans that have been released would actually take even more people off the income tax rolls, in some cases moving that number to 50% or higher of people who no longer pay income tax. And this would go in the other direction. But at the same time, anyone who would be added to the income tax under this plan and hence would now be contributing to national defense, the general workings of government, national parks, et cetera, anyone who would be added to the income tax rolls would actually still have an overall federal uh, tax reduction because by no longer having to pay Medicare payroll tax, that would be a bigger relief to them than the addition that would come from paying a little bit of income tax. On the whole matter of, of whether parents are disproportionately hit hard in the tax code, which has generated a lot, generated a lot of discussion in, in policy circles of late and somewhat on the, in the political campaign, um, my view is that in the lower half of the income spectrum in particular, it is certainly not true that parents are disproportionately hit hard by the, in, by the tax code. Um, and when you move up to, into the upper half of the income spectrum, I think you can certainly make a strong case that a lot of upper middle class families are hit disproportionately hard by the tax code. But I think in the lower half in particular, it's single people and, and couples without children who get hit particularly hard, uh, as well as many single people and couples without children up above that level. Let me give you just an example, a quick example to support this claim that if, if uh, looking at people who, who take the standard deduction, who don't itemize, a family of four that, pay, that makes $45,000 a year pays no income tax. A family of five that makes $55,000 a year, so a married couple with three kids pays no income tax. A single person who makes $15,000 a year does pay income tax. A married couple with no children that makes $25,000 a year pays income tax. So I think the last thing we need to do is increase the size of the child tax credit, which is the source of a lot of distortion in the code already, what the Main Street tax plan would do is cut the child tax credit in half and then supplement it with a child tax deduction, which would help upper middle class families in particular without causing these distortive effects in the rest of the code. Let me return to this, uh, to the arguably, I think, the most important provision in the, in the plan, the elimination of the Medicare payroll tax, and talk a little bit more about that. The plan draws a very bright line between the Medicare payroll tax and the Social Security payroll tax. In fact, both the Social Security payroll tax and the earned income tax credit are basically removed from the plan's analysis because they're, they're very unique 
entities that I think deserve to be treated separate from the rest of the tax code. The earned income tax credit is, at least in its the way it was conceived, is an attempt to mitigate a lot of the ill effects to work incentives, et cetera, that come from the existence of other federal welfare programs. I'm sure there's plenty of opportunity to reform that, but it's sort of a different matter than, than the core of income tax. Similarly, the Social Security payroll tax <coughs> is, it, it's a, it's essentially, Social Security is essentially a pay-in-for-yourself program. Imperfectly so, but essentially so. You pay in to a certain point, then you stop paying. You're supposed to be more or less paying in for yourself, and Social Security is more or less self-sustaining. Not entirely so at this point, but close. Medicare is a totally different animal. The Medicare payroll tax does not remotely cover the costs of Medicare. In fact, at this point, it only covers barely over a third of the costs of Medicare, and that number is dropping by the year. It also is not a, a tax that's even designed to be simply a pay-in-for-yourself tax. It's really just a de facto second income tax. You pay it perpetually, and it's progressive. Um, someone like uh, Jordan Spieth pays hundreds of times more in Medicare payroll tax than in income tax, or, or sorry, than in, than in Social Security tax, even though for most of us we pay a lot more in Social Security tax than Medicare payroll tax because there's, there's no cap. It's functioning as a second income tax. I think it would be extremely useful on a number of levels to get rid of this de facto second income tax, which masks Americans' tax burdens. It masks the fiscal problems of Medicare. Um, it would simplify the code greatly to simply have Medicare paid for by through general revenues, which is its primary source of payment already. And under this plan, because the plan would generate an extra $679 billion in federal revenue over 10 years, there would be more money available to pay for Medicare, not less. I'm not talking about cutting Medicare spending. There would be more money available for Medicare, not less. We don't, I think it would be very useful on a lot of levels to stop the in the political ruse that, that the Medicare payroll tax is actually paying for Medicare. In fact, I, I, would, I would say that we really ought to go one of two ways on that. We either ought to eliminate the Medicare payroll tax entirely, which is what this plan proposes, or we ought to essentially triple it to where it really is a tax that pays for Medicare and so that it functions more or less like the Social Security payroll tax. From a political standpoint and from a tax policy standpoint, I think the, the former course of action makes a lot more sense. And in addition, by eliminating the Medicare payroll tax, you, have, you can have a pro-growth tax plan that has much better distributional results than what we've typically seen be presented. One, one final thought on the plan um, is the, the treatment of, of U.S. companies who, who operate abroad. Uh, right now, we have a so-called worldwide tax system where the U.S. rate applies worldwide, but only when companies bring the money back to the United States. I think this is sort of the, the worst of all worlds. We ought to, uh, under the Main Street tax plan, we, uh, companies' revenues would be taxed regardless of whether they bring it back to the United States, but it would move most of the way toward a territorial tax system, which is a system where you pay the rate of the, of the country in which you operate. It wouldn't go all the way there, though, because I... I really believe that a hybrid sort of system would probably be more useful in terms of uh, what's proposed in the Main Street Tax Plan is basically a two-thirds territorial, one-third worldwide system where companies would pay, let's say you operate in Ireland where the tax corporate tax rate is 12.5%, say the U.S. tax rate is, is 25% under, under this plan, companies operating in Ireland would pay the 12.5% in Ireland and then they would pay one-third of the difference between that tax rate and the U.S. rate of 25%, so an extra 
4.17%. I think this would be the right mix of, uh, of, of a couple of key concerns, keeping U.S. companies competitive, making companies want to charter in the U.S., stopping inversions and all the things we've seen, and yet at the same time not unnecessarily rolling out the welcome-to-move mat and encouraging companies to go do business abroad. And I think uh, some of my uh, fellow panelists may, may address that a little bit more. So that's sort of an overview of the Main Street Tax Plan, and uh, I look forward to hearing what uh, my fellow panelists have to say, and thank you again for coming. Well, thank you all for uh, being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here to discuss this plan. I think it's a breath of fresh air in the uh, tax policy debate. Uh, as Kyle was saying, we have seen a lot of plans uh, in this uh, campaign season. Uh, however, it, uh, some may question whether the quality is commensurate with the quantity of the plans that we have seen. Uh, a lot of the plans clearly lose large amounts of revenue. Some of them uh, have distributional consequences that I think would be politically fatal. And a lot of them really just represent wishful thinking. So I, what's good about this plan is that it makes a decision to try to present something that actually could be adopted. Its goals are not as sweeping as some of the tax reform plans, but at the same time, it's more than just tinkering. So it occupies, I think, an intermediate space where it's making significant changes, but not uh, absolutely radical restructuring of the system. And it tries to achieve the twin goals of growth uh, and uh, distribution. So just to elaborate on that a bit, what does a pro-growth tax plan really need to include? I think that there are two things primarily. The first is that it does need to be, um, it needs to lower taxes, marginal effective tax rates on capital income, on saving and investment. And it needs to be revenue neutral, or if you want to say, if you prefer, you could say budget neutral, but of course, it's just realistically nobody proposes uh, entitlement spending cuts to offset revenue losses, so I think I'll stick with, uh, with revenue neutral. Now, you may ask, why does the revenue neutrality matter for economic growth? Uh, the mar lower marginal tax rates on saving and investment clearly do because capital accumulation is one of the drivers of long-run growth and a driver that is significantly taxed under the current tax system. But uh, what about the revenue neutrality? Well, the, there's two growth drawbacks if you have a plan <clears throat> that adds significantly to the deficit. The first is that crowding out occurs, uh, that the debt will drive up interest rates and reduce investment uh, by businesses and by, by homeowners. There's some debate as to the size of those effects, but uh, they certainly should occur to some extent. The second problem, I think, is maybe even more important or as important and easier to overlook, that the government has a budget constraint, and if it doesn't bring in the money today, it has to bring in the money tomorrow. And so if you don't replace your revenue loss today, in the future, something will have to be done to service that debt, or maybe pay it down, but more realistically to service it. And now you may say, well, perhaps they'll just do it through spending cuts. I mean, they'll cut entitlement benefits in the future to offset this revenue loss. Well, I think that's kind of a, a unrealistic hope. If it was that easy to cut entitlement benefits, why wouldn't these plans be including those those cuts today in, in their proposals? I, uh, realistically, a lot of the debt that's issued under some of the plans out there would end up translating into higher future taxes, and so the disincentives uh, from those tax increases would compound the harm from the crowding out of the debt. So you really want the plan to both lower the tax rate on capital income and also be revenue neutral uh, or revenue raising. Now, the other concern, of course, is distribution. To be distributionally acceptable, the plan you know, should not raise taxes at the bottom, and so it should preserve something, I think, that looks somewhat like 
the distribution of taxes that we have today. And there's probably room for some adjustments, but uh, there's it's unrealistic to think that you have a plan that dramatically shifts the tax burden from high-income people to low-income people, even if someone thought that would be uh, desirable. It just wouldn't, uh, wouldn't happen. Um, so this does impose some constraints. It means, I think, two things that are intertwined with each other. The first is that you're not going to be able to lower the statutory rate of the individual income tax, the top statutory tax rate, by as much as some of the plans, you know, propose doing. And I think we see that here at the top rate of 33 percent. The, uh, you know, Chairman Camp in his plan wrestled with those limitations and, of course, he ended up with a 35 percent top rate. He called it a 25 percent top rate with a 10 percent surtax, but I think most of us would call that a 35 percent tax rate. Um, I mean, if not, I guess there could be a zero percent rate with a 35 percent surtax at the top. I mean, that would be take that to its its logical conclusion. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that, that goes along with the limited reduction in top statutory tax rates is that you probably won't reduce work disincentives very much. And I think that there's a pretty tight connection between the work disincentive that a tax system poses and the amount of redistribution that it achieves. And so if you're trying to maintain revenue and distributional neutrality, you're not going to be able to reduce work disincentives very much. You know, consumption taxes, income taxes, the other taxes we have, all of them have work disincentives. And so what we really ought to be focusing on from a growth perspective is the disincentives to saving and investment. And so I think this plan measures up pretty well that it uh, is a boost to capital formation because it has full expensing, has a lower corporate tax rate, a lower estate tax, uh, leaves the capital gains tax rate unchanged, uh, does eliminate the, uh, the business interest deduction, which on the one hand, of course, is an increase on the, in the tax burden on investment, but it's a neutralizing increase in that it targets the increase at the debt-financed investment that's been getting preferential treatment. So it's a step towards a more level uh, playing field. The plan has a small static revenue loss and is uh, scored by the Tax Foundation as having a small uh, dynamic, macrodynamic revenue gain. I, I would, I do want to say one thing here, which I think is important. Uh, in terms of how you describe this, Jeff, you said the plan, you know, more than pays for itself. And of course, that's true in some sense. The, there's a static revenue loss and dynamic revenue gain. I just want to be clear that the, there's not a claim being made that the growth effects of the tax reduction provisions are large enough for those growth for those tax reduction provisions to yield a revenue gain. Instead, the claim is that the base broadening measures that are in there plus the growth effects are together sufficient to offset the revenue loss. So it's not a case of saying we're beyond the peak of the Laffer curve, uh, but instead <coughs> relying on a mix of base broadening and, uh, and growth effects. So that's my uh, bird's eye view of the plan. Let me just mention a few things that I think are interesting. There's a lot of others that could be mentioned, but I think my time will run out soon. Um, I like the fact that the plan does a better job than the current system of recognizing that child care costs are a cost of earning income. One of the few ways to actually improve work disincentives without um, uh, reducing the amount of redistribution is to have be better tax relief for the cost of earning income, and, and child care costs clearly qualify. I think the plan could have gone further than it does, but it's a step uh, forward compared to the current system. The hybrid worldwide territorial system, I think, has a lot to commend it. I mean, as time goes on and, and corporate charters become even more mobile, perhaps it'll be necessary to move further towards a, a territorial uh, system than this plan does. But it does seek to balance all the distortions, the distortion of driving U.S. chartered companies to operate abroad, 
which is what you get with a territorial system versus the distortion of encouraging uh, U.S. companies to become foreign companies or to be displaced by foreign companies, which you get uh, with the worldwide system. The worldwide system also today with its foreign tax credit <clears throat> has a very bizarre incentive, which Dan Shaviro and I have, have, have criticized, that it really makes you relatively cost insensitive to paying foreign income taxes because under many circumstances, each extra dollar of income taxes that you pay to a foreign government, your U.S. tax goes down by a dollar. And so under this plan, it would only go down, you, you would only get one-third relief for those foreign taxes. And so I think it makes U.S. companies more cost-conscious on the foreign taxes, uh, which, uh, which certainly makes sense from the standpoint of national well-being. Uh, the decision to abolish the Medicare payroll tax, I think, is interesting, and I think it's probably a, a, I think it's a reasonable step. I, one can argue it pro and con. I strongly agree with the decision not to eliminate the Social Security payroll tax. I think that is so interwoven in with the benefit side of the program that it makes no sense to tamper with that unless it's part of a comprehensive entitlement reform plan, in which case, of course, you might be changing many, many things. Uh, so let me leave it at that, and I'm sure other things will come up in Q&A. Eric? Hi. Um, First, I want to say uh, I'm speaking for myself and not for any uh, current or past employers or future employers. Um, I guess another comment when Jeffrey um, talked about 25% tax rate discouraging work, I, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't be here since <laughs> I'm paying a lot more tax on the hour I'm spending here, but I, I won't uh, go into that. Uh, I, had a, I don't want to get into two the weeds too much here. There's a lot of detail in this proposal. Hopefully we'll get to it in the Q&A. Uh, I want to start with my last point, which, which is about scoring. Uh, our organization scores plans. We have not scored this one. We are developing a dynamic scoring method. We don't have one yet, so we've only been doing the, the conventional scoring without macro effects. Um, as I understand it, Kyle can correct me, this plan on static scoring would lose about a trillion dollars over 10 years, which oddly makes it about the, the mirror image of the Clinton plan, which, which gains a trillion dollars and puts them in the range of sort of modest, you know, 100 trillion sounds like a lot, but 100 billion a year is about half a percent of GDP. So these are kind of modest changes in the tax burden one way or another, as opposed to the other plans, which are quite extreme. Uh, so, I mean, that puts it in the reality department. That's a, that's a good thing. I have some question about whether this gains revenue, and I guess the, the big question really has to do with the way savings is handled in the tax foundation model, which is an assumption that savings is, is perfectly elastic. Now, the, the, there are two rationales for that, one which doesn't make any sense at all, so I won't mention it, but the other one is that money coming in from abroad, uh, we're like a small open economy, and we're a price taker as, as far as capital is concerned. First of all, I don't believe that's true. I mean, there, there's obviously going to be some increase in the cost of capital if we try to uh, borrow more from overseas. But uh, the other part of it is kind of how you interpret that, because if, if we are getting more GDP because there's more foreign financed investment in the United States, what that means is that income is not going to Americans. It's going to the investors. Well, you could say more workers are employed, but then when capital flows in, that changes the trade balance in an adverse way and employs less workers from that score. So I think all of these international things have really not been dealt with in this model. Uh, and I am skeptical that JCT would score this as a revenue-gaining proposal. But that, I just want to leave that 
on the table because I think it's being oversold in, in that, that respect. Um, so I'll make a couple of comments. Why do I think the tax reform system needs to be fixed and, and, and what do I think the big problems are and how does this plan uh, address them? Um, first, which will certainly make me controversial in this group, I think the tax system raises insufficient revenue. And I'm saying this not so much based on my preferences, but my interpretation of what public demands are. And I think we've learned in this campaign that Republican voters particularly don't want to, don't want to touch entitlements and don't want to touch Social Security and Medicare. And we're not going to be able to, with the aging of the of baby boomers, not going to be able to get the deficit under control without higher taxes unless we do something about Social Security and Medicare. So I think realistically we need to think about raising more revenue. I agree that the income tax and raising rates is a bad way to do it. And so I think we really need to think seriously about in instituting a value-added tax and, and partly to substitute for income tax. And, and I'm just saying that I know that's outside the range of politics, but I think in terms of the big problems, this is not, this is not addressing it. A second thing I think is a problem is gratuitous complex, what I call gratuitous complexity. I don't think in today's world we can have a simple tax system. You know, when I was doing small business on my own return and trying to keep track of the miles, the car miles that were personal and business, that's a mess. And yet, to do it fairly, you really have to do that. So I think for anybody who has a business return, it's going to be complicated. On the other hand, there's a lot of what I would call gratuitous complexity. We don't have to have multiple savings incentives. We don't have to have a whole different tax system, the AMT. We don't have to have phase-outs of all these benefits. We don't have to have different education credits, different savings incentives. And I think this plan makes some good steps in that direction by eliminating phase-outs, by reducing the AMT. I kind of wish they had gotten rid of the AMT because they're getting rid of the state and local tax deduction. I don't know really what you need the AMT for, how much it really raises once you've done that. But none nonetheless, this is, all, this is all a step in the right direction. Um, the third thing I think that's a big problem, and I don't have time to talk about it at length, Alan Viard and I have worked on this, is that the rules for taxing corporate business income are really completely out of step with the global economy in which, in which we live. And a couple of things I want to say. I do like their international reform. I don't think it solves the basic problem, but given the structure that we have, we have a hybrid system because it's a trade-off between a worldwide system, which would make it disadvantaged, advantageous to be a U.S. resident company, and a territorial system, which would encourage U.S. companies to invest overseas. We have a, a crappy hybrid system now because we have this tax on repatriation. This system gets rid of the repatriation tax and substitutes a low rate tax on accrued foreign income. And I think within those parameters, that's the right way to go. So I applaud that uh, provision. Um, a couple of other things I like about the plan, uh, it eliminates some preferences like the carried interest loophole. Uh, lowering the corporate rate is a step in the right direction, although I believe uh, that it's, it needs to be paid for, and I don't think it really is. Uh, I'm concerned about the revenue effect. I'm not sure how that was scored about going to full expensing, uh, especially when you include buildings as well as equipment. I think that's a, that's a very big uh, cost. Um, 
Uh, I'm, I'm glad they increased the AMT exemption and, and did the phase-outs. And there are a lot of other little things. Alan's talked about some of the child provisions, which I think uh, move in the right direction. Um, some things I question. Um, where, was, where was that? Um, the inconsistency between the consumption tax treatment at the business level, which is basically the right rules for a consumption tax, you have expensing and no interest deductions, and at the individual level, a taxation of investment income and interest income. I think that that introduces a lot of new inconsistencies and distortions, and I think that needs that really needs to be addressed. Something that went like the Rubio plan to a full X tax would have dealt with that issue in a in a in a cleaner way. Um, uh, the inconsistency between flow-throughs and, and, and corporations with different top rates, issues have to be dealt to deal with that. Transition rules are not mentioned. Uh, that would be less than moving to a full-fledged consumption tax, but still an issue. How do you deal with old depreciation? How do you deal with outstanding interest? And finally, a couple of little things. Uh, I find it strange that, that the Medicare, limiting the Medicare tax is touted as a simplification. It just sort of comes right out of your wages and you don't have to do anything to pay it. I mean, it may be from the point of view of making the plan balance in some distributional way that that's a good thing to do and maybe we need to break the fiction of the HI trust fund. But needless to say, I don't find it a simplification. Marriage penalties, uh, we all like eliminating marriage penalties, but I think the goal should be marriage neutrality. So when we reduce the marriage penalties, we're introducing a lot of mar marriage bonuses, which, cre which creates another set of, of inequities. I don't know how to best balance that, but I don't think going in all the way in one direction is the right answer. Uh, and it does not reduce the biggest marriage penalties, which are in the earned income tax credit. Uh, however, I would also say for the earned income credit, and this is a very difficult question, but when you're talking about um, programs that are, are benefit programs as opposed to taxes, you might really want an earning a, a, a marriage penalty of some sort because you really don't want to give earned income credits to somebody who has a, a high income earner, married to a high income earner. And so, you know, that, that's, that's a whole series of complexity. So I will stop there. I, I do want to say on a positive note, this is certainly unlike many of the other plans, one that's within the realm of reality, and it's, it's good to have something that we can, we can talk about in this kind of way. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Henry. Well, thank you very much. I'm the non-economist on the panel, so that either means I'll be saying things you don't care about or I'll be coming at things from a completely different perspective. But my role here is to talk about the politics of the plan, and I want to put that in the context of the headline of uh, the op-ed that Jeff wrote. It says, GOP candidates need better pro-growth tax, pro tax plans. And I think part of what the GOP needs to do is actually focus less on pro-growth as the way they approach taxes and more on how tax policy fits inside of the overall GOP political problem. The overall Republican political problem is not new. It's been the same problem since the fall of the Republican-McKinley-era coalition. And it's one that is best exemplified in the question that came out in 2012 in the exit poll, but it is not limited in scope or to the personality of Mitt Romney. 
The question in the exit poll that f puts its finger on the fundamental Republican political problem was one where it asked all respondents, which of these four characteristics do you most think is important in a president? And three of them were supported that people thought Romney was better. Seventy-nine percent of respondents picked one of those, and Romney won that those categories by between nine and 23 points. So you'd think, you know, 80 percent of the people, you win by an average of 12 or 14 points, you ought to be measuring the drapes on the Oval Office, which, of course, is what the Romney transition team was doing. Um, but 20-something percent of Americans chose the last one, and Romney lost this group by 63 points, 81 to 18. And that characteristic was cares about people like me. The Republican Party has been perceived as not caring about people like me since the Great Depression. For no year since 1932 has the Republican Party had a plurality lead on the Democratic Party when party preference is asked. Eighty-four years. Republicans can elect presidents, they can elect legislatures, but it's always on the basis of people who say they are not Republicans voting for Republicans as an alternative to the party that is the plurality choice. The main difference in the last 25 years is that it used to be Democrats had a majority. When Ronald Reagan was elected, 50% of Americans said they were Democrats, 25% said they were Republicans, and 25% said they were independents, which is why a feature of campaigns in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s was to create Democrats for groups for Republicans, because literally you could not win unless you persuaded Democrats to vote for you. Today, we're Democrats only have a plurality of somewhere, depending on the poll, between six and ten points. But when a problem exists for 84 years and you don't deal with it, that's a question of poor management. The GOP autopsy had this partially right. And if you go back and read the Growth and Opportunity Project report, which is called the Priebus autopsy after 2012, they correctly identified that people had a compassion gap when it came to the Republicans. They perceived that Republicans don't care about people. But the autopsy missed the last two words. They focused on the compassion gap of caring about people and then proposed that Republicans ought to start caring about certain groups of abstract people, such as Latinos and single women. What they missed was the last two words of the exit poll, like me. And that's what the overall problem that the Republicans have had is that people don't want an abstract government that isn't there when they need it. They don't want an abstract government that is always there telling them what to do. They want a government that is there when they need it for the purposes that they need it so that they can get on with a life that they can live without instruction, without direction, and without regulation. And I think one way to understand this from a humorous standpoint is uh, a joke that was told by the 1940s leading uh, comedian, Jack Benny, who had his shtick uh, that he was a miser. Um, and one of his famous routines, a mugger comes up to him and says, sticks a gun in his ribs and says, your money or your life. Ten seconds pass. Twenty seconds pass. Benny says nothing. The guy's never had this happen before. So he looks startled and he sticks the gun in a little harder and says, listen, bub, did you hear me? I said, your money or your life. To which Benny responds, I'm thinking it over. <laughs> the broad Republican Party, the broad Republican problem is that the people know Republicans care about money. They don't know that they care about life. 
So the Main Street tax plan, I think, needs to be measured in light of the degree to which it talks less about money and more about life, the way a person would perceive that. And on this, I think the Main Street tax plan has a number of great advantages over any of the tax plans that are being offered by any of the Republican presidential candidates. The first advantage that it has, I believe, is the elimination of the Medicare payroll tax. For, as Jeff correctly noted, it is not, in fact, something that pays for Medicare. It is only something that pays for part of Medicare and under a fictional uh, trust fund system that everyone knows, except perhaps the people who are being hoodwinked by paying the tax, is not really a trust fund. It's not really uh, a fund that is immune to being raided, that's earning genuine interest. It's a f accounting fiction. Um, and meanwhile, what this does is it shifts the cost for current Medicare away from current recipients and onto the backs of current workers, particularly uh, for current workers who are earning, uh, for whom a 1.5% tax and a few hundred dollars a year is actually quite a big burden. I think eliminating that and saying if you are a person who's making fifteen or $20,000 a year or $30,000 a year, you're not going to have to pay that tax and your employer is not going to have to pay that tax, tells people that we're on their side that people for whom $300 and $500 are a large amount of money and it's not going for anything that's going to benefit them. It simply goes to support people who are earning much, earn much more than them during their lives and are paying significantly lower Medicare premiums as a result. It tells them that we've got their back. I also like the new child tax deduction. The child tax deduction, although it is of much larger value the farther up the income stream you go, is still something that I think tells people in the working class that we understand that raising children is something that's expensive. It's something that's necessary, and we're here to help you out. In fact, that's one of the things that Ronald Reagan focused on in the 1986 tax reform. If you go back and actually read his speeches, not what Larry Kudlow or Steve Moore will tell you are his speeches, but read Reagan himself, Reagan features the increase in the standard deduction, an increase in family, um, uh, an in, in increase in the uh, personal exemptions, much more or equally as heavily as the cuts in rates. In fact, does so explicitly on the grounds that raising families are expensive, families are the bedrock of our society, and we need to make it easier, not harder, to do that. So I applaud Jeff in following in the footsteps of Ronald Reagan, not the people who incorrectly cite his name today as his their heirs. I also like the cut in the 25% bracket to the 20% bracket for exactly the same reason, which is to say it tells somebody who's moving up in the world that we've got your back. We're not going to, we're understand that your incentives matter, that you're actually using, uh, it's harder for you to make uh, ends meet than it is for somebody who's making $250,000 a year, and we're here for your side. And finally, I think that the cutting corporate rates and the full expensing is, oddly enough, another way uh, to help the average American and talk about life rather than money. They know that corporates, corporations are moving overseas to take advantage of better tax plans. They know that corporations bring jobs with them, and when they leave, jobs go away. Cutting corporate tax rates and making us competitive for internationally mobile corporations tells the average American that our priority is your priority, that we care about people like you, and we're going to bring the people who help you out back home to America rather than punitively allowing them or actually kicking them out the door to go somewhere else. The dirty little secret of American tax policy is that we are not uncompetitive when it comes to the top personal income tax rate. 
In fact, most countries tax at a higher rate and have that rate cut in at a lower level of income. We are not out of the range for the top earner when it comes to the personal income tax. We are out of the top range, well out of the range for the corporate tax, and it's time we reflected that. Just a couple of things I would like to focus on is queries for Jeff. Um, why cut the child tax credit in half for lower income workers? Um, I understand that you'd like to bring more people onto the tax rolls, and that's perhaps a reason for that, but it's a provision that in some way cuts against the overall political advantage of the message, which is we've got your back, we're on your side. Ditto with the child care tax credit. I don't know whether that is something uh, that's changing it from a credit to a deduction, knowing that deductions tend to help higher income workers who have higher, higher rates more than lower income workers. Again, I don't know how that... Well, that tells me I'm done with my 10 minutes, so I will call. Great. I will end very quickly. Um, why eliminate medical and casualty losses? Uh, that's one of the things that's often considered uh, as a no-brainer by tax reform advocates. But putting yourself in the name, in the, uh, in the standpoint of the average person, when corporations have unusual expenses and lose money, they're not taxed. When you have a casualty loss, i.e. when you lose your home when Hurricane Katrina comes and wipes out New Orleans, or when you have an excess medical profits tax or medical expense deduction, you know, in other words, you go to a hospital or you have an expense, this is for the individual like an excess, you know, a bad year is for a corporation. The individual code right now permits you to deduct those excess losses and consequently move in a small way towards kind of a corporate-like tax on profits. Eliminating those allows you to gain some money back, but it takes away the question of when you're really sick or when you've lost your home in a hurricane, the government's not there to help you out. I would suggest that perhaps a tax plan that is focused on helping, caring about people like me would look at those provisions differently and be willing to keep those deductions or something like that in a tax code precisely to send the message that when the chips are down, the Republicans have your back. Thank you, Henry. Um, I guess we'll start right where uh, Henry left off with, I guess, a question about the distribution of this plan or plans in general. Um, the Main Street tax plan, as Henry said, it cuts the child tax credit in half, um, which is something that benefits the middle class um, substantially. Um, it, in fact, this is something that Rubio put in his plan. He actually put a new, larger uh, child tax credit um, in the plan. And I was just wondering, any of the panels, or Jeff especially, um, whether it's um, if the focus is on the middle class or lower income individuals in tax policy, uh, why um, why would sh why would should we be paring back refundable credits instead of actually expanding them at the same time as doing a lot of this pro growth stuff? Well, it's a good question. Again, it's one that's been a contentious um, matter of debate. And uh, I just think that if you, if you look at the tax code, tax credits tend to look like something that we're they were added later, and they, and they distort everything. I mean, the tax code has some degree of logic to it in general, and then a tax credit, when it's thrown on top of it, is it very quickly skews things, I think, um, in a way that's hard to defend. And I just simply think, if you look at the numbers, the people in the lower middle class uh, that really need the help are single people and, and married couples without children. They're the ones who, again, if you make $15,000 and you're single, you're paying income taxes. You make 55000 and you're a family of five, you don't pay income taxes. I don't see, uh, I don't think that's 
fair. And, and I think um, I think conservatives, Republicans ought to be looking out not just for families, people with kids, but also for for people who are who don't have kids. And uh, so I, I think that that's a key part of the, of the answer to that question. But when do we have social responsibility? Why do we just say, go ahead, screw around, do whatever you want, society will take care of you? Come on, when do we change? Why can't we figure out what, we have to, what we're going to have to pay for society and everybody pays a fair share? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but this really gets to me. And I, I mean, I think the goal of, 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 a tax, of tax reform and of the tax code should be that it's fair to people with and without children. I just think the current code is pretty hard on upper middle class families with kids and, and pretty hard on lower middle class people that don't have kids. And so getting, reducing the value of the tax credit and, and supplementing it with a deduction, I think, would help to equalize this in, in, a, in a very just way. Let me give an example of what the, the contrary approach does. The, uh, the tax plan that, that Marco Rubio put out uh, under that plan, which would have um, made the tax credit for, for children instead of $1,000, would have made it $3,500, a family of four, with four kids, married couple with four kids, making $115,000 under the Rubio plan would have paid no income tax, no income tax, period. I mean, there would be no such thing as a family making $115,000, exactly that amount, with four kids under the Rubio plan that would pay any income tax. Meanwhile, again, somebody making $100,000 less who's single would pay income tax. I, I just I think that's hard to defend, but at the same time... They, they all pay payroll tax, though, right? They do pay payroll tax. And that's an, another, I think, important distinction is that, I mean, first off, everyone pays payroll tax. Uh, sometimes people make the argument that it doesn't really matter how many people pay income tax because we shouldn't worry if... 40 to 45 percent of people don't pay income tax. Under the Rubio plan, it would have been 50 percent of people didn't pay income tax. Some people say that's just not a problem because people pay payroll taxes. But payroll taxes are designed to pay into programs that are for you. Social Security payroll tax, the Medicare payroll tax, again, doesn't really work like that, and I think we should get rid of it. But that's what so, you, you pay into Social Security basically for yourself. If you don't pay any income tax, you're not contributing anything to the general functioning of government, to national parks, to national defense. And I just think it's important that you have a society where at least the vast majority of people are paying at least a few dollars in income tax. And I don't think we ought to move in the other direction from that. Any other comments on that? Or okay, yeah, I, I guess I guess I do. I mean, we, we've gone through a. a, a an era where we, we've put a lot of programs into the tax system that might otherwise be done as direct outlay programs. So if, if people don't pay income tax because they get an earned income tax credit or some other kind of tax credit, um, and then you take away those tax credits, but you want to help those people through a spending program, all of a sudden they're paying income tax. I'm not sure what difference that makes. I think this is a, a number. Uh, my organization is responsible for putting it out originally, but I think it's it's taken on a life of its own and 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 is a, 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 a acquired a meaning that it doesn't deserve. 
A related matter that Eric sort of hints at there is that one thing I didn't mention about the plan is it would make tax credits non-refundable with the exception of earned income tax credit, which, again, is basically put aside for purposes of this plan, and then uh, health care tax credits that would be potentially part of an Obamacare alternative. Obamacare doesn't really have tax credits. It has direct subsidies to insurance companies. But um, other than those, as far as your, basic, your, your sort of core income tax burden, um, under the Main Street tax plan, the least you could pay in taxes would be zero. And uh, right now, there are there are a lot of people who who do view April fifteenth as as a payday, and uh, and I don't think that's particularly healthy. And I don't um, uh, that's not really what the tax system should probably be for, in my estimation. Um, another issue that was brought up. Uh, multiple times, of course, is that um, your plan, you want to improve f the fiscal situation, but um, one tax that you eliminate, the Medicare payroll tax, that, that's a pretty big tax cut, and uh, the payroll tax is <coughs> a pretty efficient tax in that it raises a bunch of revenue and has very limited economic distortions. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that issue that, you know, this this plan may have been even better if they just if it just left the Medicare payroll tax maybe alone. Well, if I could start on that one, I I think that oh you want me to? oh no go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um, one uh, sort of cautionary note on the Medicare payroll tax is I think the worst thing we could do with it is to simply reduce it to cut it. A lot of times people propose we should reduce the payroll tax burden that pe people face. Uh, to me, that's completely counterproductive. The idea of getting rid of the Medicare payroll tax is, is to recognize that this is not paying for Medicare. Most, you know, a much larger chunk of Medicare is already funded through general revenues. Let's let's stop the ruse. And Eric's point is a fair one about maybe it's not the best term to speak of it as simplifying the tax code to get rid of the Medicare payroll tax, but I think it makes it much more transparent that you can that that tax is is a a very non-transparent tax that sort of dupes people into thinking they're paying into Medicare fully when they're not. And, and it masks Medicare's fiscal woes and it masks people's individual tax burdens. Um, and and I, I think it, it operates in a very, very different way than the Social Security payroll tax. And, and so I think it would be very useful to, to get rid of it, but, but not to simply cut it. I, like I said before, I think we really ought to go one of two directions. We ought to either basically triple it to where it does pay for Medicare, or get rid of it and just recognize that this thing is a second de facto income tax and there's no real justification for it. So from a growth perspective, I mean, of course you could get more growth, I think, if you kept the Medicare payroll tax and then did not have as many income taxes. The income tax, of course, does put a penalty on saving and investment, <laughs> which the Medicare tax generally does not. But I think uh, Jeff does outline the real case for why you might want to get rid of the Medicare payroll tax, and it really is transparency. And I, I think it, it is an important clarification that it's not really simplicity. I mean, Eric uh, made that point very well, that you're not really simplifying things by getting rid of the tax. But it is maybe a step towards transparency. Let me just say that in one of my former jobs, I had a colleague uh, mention to me, uh, he referred to the, the, the FICA tax, the 2.9 percent, uh, or well, I probably said 1.4, the, 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 the FICA tax component that pays for Medicare and Medicaid. And so I think certainly uh, that would be an individual, a voter, a citizen, a taxpayer, who did not fully comprehend the cost of the federal government's medical programs. If he thought that all of Medicare and Medicaid 
could be paid for by that FICA tax, when in reality the FICA tax doesn't pay for any of Medicaid and pays for only a minority share of, uh, of Medicare. So there is a, a step towards uh, transparency here, and I think that's the, uh, the case that one could make for it. From a political standpoint, um, Jeff, would it be true that if you did not eliminate the Medicare payroll tax and said you kept it in, that there would be virtually no tax reduction for people making under $37,000 a year? Yeah, it would profoundly change the distributional outcome of the plan. That's one of the beautiful things about getting rid of the Medicare payroll tax would be a very beneficial thing in, of, in itself. And it also allows you to put a, a tax reform package out there that's very pro-growth and yet does benefit people in, in the lower half of the income spectrum, does show that the plan is for people like them. Uh, and um, and so I, it really sort of serves two two key purposes, useful in itself, and allows you to have an overarching um, tax reform program that is pro-growth and and has and benefits the typical American or even the lower income American uh, much more than you could otherwise. Yeah, but I think if you wanted to keep the Medicare payroll tax but avoid any adverse distributional effects, you'd certainly have to rethink your attitude on the refundable tax credits. Um, that'd be the other way you could go. Yeah, uh, so Henry talked about sort of, I think, corporate rate reductions are fixing the corporate tax as sort of this populist thing, but I think there's a challenge there, and one of them is, of course, in the Main Street tax plan, the, the, uh, the reform of foreign-sourced income of corporations. Um, it's kind of a complex topic. No one really knows about it. No one really cares about it except for economists. Um, so it's, it, I think that's a big challenge there, that how, how, I think, how would you convince people that that would be good for them uh, personally when this is just changing how corporations deal with uh, taxation across borders? Um, I don't know, Alan, you want to answer that? Or, yeah, I guess <laughs> or we all could probably or, weigh in yeah. to some extent. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think pu public opinion polls do not show a desire for corporate tax reduction on the part of the American public. And uh, so, <clears throat> I mean, I think Henry is right that you can view this as a um, as something that, that should be viewed uh, as helping middle class people uh, in terms of bringing more capital to the United States, but it's uh, not something that the polls really show people focusing on. So I'm not sure when selling this plan, I mean, that you know, probably wouldn't be, I don't know, the, the aspect that you would, you would primarily, I mean, when you market a plan, I think you talk about the issues that people care about the most, and this would probably not be the issue that people would, would naturally ask about. But if they do, then I think the, probably the key thing to point out is just how much more sensible this is as a way to tax the, um, uh, the, the, these foreign overseas profits. I mean, today we have this notion that ostensibly they're taxed at 35%. The same as the U.S. profits of a U.S. company. We tax the foreign profits of the U.S. company at 35%. But of course, we then say you get a full credit for your foreign income taxes, which really dilutes or eliminates your incentive to try to avoid foreign income taxes. Uh, so that's really a boon to, to foreign treasuries. And then we say we'll wait until you defer, you will, we'll defer the tax until you bring it back, and you get these, these earnings piled up overseas. The problems posed by those earnings being overseas may not be as great as some people say, but it's clearly a distortion. And uh, it, at a minimum, it means companies have to jump through accounting hoops to try to, uh, 
to uh, finance their investments uh, when they could more straightforwardly just repatriate back as a dividend. So I think the way to, to say it is, look, we're still going to be taxing the American companies on their overseas profits, uh, but we're not going to do it at the same rate as their U.S. income because that's not done today in practice. Uh, but instead of giving them this deferral benefit and a full foreign tax credit, we're going to give them a partial foreign credit and a lower rate. And uh, I think that'd be the way to, to market it. I think one thing you know, to, to look at is just how other countries have managed to do this. That you look at Canada, that was cutting its corporate rate, not its personal rate, over the nine years that conservative government was there. Take a look at the Tory government that can, has been uh, focusing less on personal tax reduction, although they've done a little bit of that, and more on corporate reduction. You look at the Irish government that's you know, moved to a massively lower corporate tax years ago, but now has focused on a patent box as its primary measure of trying to attract new uh, grounds. Many of the European countries have cut their corporate tax rates, and these, com these ruling governments do not suffer retribution at the polls. I think uh, people understand, and or they either don't care or they understand corporate rates differently than they understand personal rates. I think it is much harder to say that a person who is really wealthy should get a benefit than particularly somebody who doesn't necessarily be is viewed as somebody who is helping somebody like them as opposed to a corporation. And there's a lot of people who have been hurt or know of other people who have been hurt by corporations that have moved overseas or closed down or have talked about um, the uh, pressure from uh, from other countries. And I, th I would focus on that to the extent you felt it was necessary in order to focus on uh, corporate rate reduction. The corporate rate reduction is also something that's harder for uh, a Democrat to attack because a number of the Democrats have already bought into that. Whereas there's a sharp partisan difference on personal tax rates, there's much less of a sharp partisan difference on corporate rates. And again, because of the phenomena of corporations who have moved plants or, closed, or you know, inverted and moved corporate headquarters overseas, I think there's a populist element that remains underexploited. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who didn't know that Americans wanted to ban Muslims until a political entrepreneur, you know, from entering the country until a political entrepreneur uh, saw a demand that other politicians did not. Uh, I think we should understand that politics works like a market in that respect, and uh, there are uh, always are un unpursued options that, when an entrepreneur, political entrepreneur, seizes on it, uh, can find uh, benefits that others didn't understand were there. Well, I'm not an expert in politics, so I'm weighing into an area, but I, I think my my general sense is that when we're talking about these kinds of issues about should we have a Medicare payroll tax or should we have a uh, corporate rate of this or should we tax foreign income this way, that by and large the public is uninformed and doesn't care. And that when we, we shouldn't talk about technical tax reform things in terms of the public. I think the public cares about the size of the tax burden and they care about who pays the tax burden. And they care about how big government is and how small government is, and people have strong opinions and different opinions. And we can argue about whether the public opinion wants to go in one direction or another. But I think when we start getting into the weeds, 
I, I, I don't think we gain much by appealing to public opinion. It, it, it. Doesn't that bring up a challenge, right, of who pays, right? A lot of pro-growth reforms shift the burden from investment income to labor income, and that, of course, brings up issue of who pays, right? It's going to be workers that are bearing the burden, right? A value-added tax. It's a really good tax. It's very efficient. Um, but people scream about, oh, I don't want to pay that sort of thing. That's a, I think that's a challenge, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the key is, of course, that you have to look at the distributional effects of the overall plan. Yeah. And it's easy to pick out some particular aspect and say, this aspect is not going to help people at the bottom. But then you have to look at the overall plan and see how it uh, how it shakes out. I mean, I think that, uh, that Speaker Ryan, you know, he said that he didn't really want to look at distributional tables. I don't think that's a politically feasible or that that's desirable. I think you do have to care about who's paying. And, and so we will continue to use distributional tables with all their imperfections. One more thought on the corporate rate um, and the treatment of U.S. companies abroad. I think there's pretty clear bipartisan consensus, as, as Henry alluded to, for, that this, is, this isn't working right. I mean, there have been plenty of Democrats who have proposed lowering the corporate rate. I think almost everyone can see there's a problem with how companies are taxed when they do business abroad that's leading to uh, companies uh, selling parts, you know, all the inversions and, and everything that's going on. Um, I guess I would say that while I agree with Kyle that the 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 specifics of this sort of policy, two-thirds territorial, one-third worldwide or something, is not going to be something the American people really want to hear about it. I think the larger goals of it are that the goal in this should be to make U.S. companies competitive with, with other companies, companies from other countries, and at the same time be looking out for American workers. And I think uh, if you talk in those terms, I think Americans have shown a fair amount of concern with issues of trade, which has vaulted a particular presidential candidate forward quite, uh, in quite an unexpected manner. Um, and, uh, and I think this hybrid approach is, would, would really be something that would both look out for American workers and, and help keep U.S. companies competitive. Uh, um, I mentioned my brother-in-law before. Another brother-in-law of mine uh, is an executive for a Fortune 500 company, and I ran this idea by him, and he thought that, uh, that it, it would probably be about the right uh, hybrid approach to have U.S. companies, A, be competitive, and, and B, on the margins when they're trying to decide do we want to open a new plant abroad or, or in the United States, to probably make them somewhat more likely to, to, to open one here in the U.S. So give uh, more family credit there. All right. Uh, so I guess we're opening up to uh, audience uh, questions. So um, remember, limit it to a question, not a statement. Isn't it very difficult to determine what is a corporation? Because we could allow individuals to incorporate in Delaware and constitute themselves as foreign taxpayers. Uh, isn't there an issue of disclosure? We, we are uh, determining that we passed a very sophisticated uh, disclosure provision with FATCA, and yet we have not followed through with funding the IRS or even incorporating with the OECD this exchange of information. And without that, you cannot have a fair tax system. You cannot have a fair tax system when there's a lot of distortion in third world you know, tax havens. Right. Um, I'd like for you to address that, please. Any comments on that? 
Well, so I guess if you incorporate in Delaware, you'd be a U.S. corporation rather than a foreign corporation. But the, the fact that you can charter yourself, the, the fact that you can charter a corporation abroad is one of the dilemmas that is really posed for international corporate tax policy today. Uh, if, as long as you're trying to tax at the corporate level, you've got this constant trade-off. The more that you move to a territorial system, the greater the incentive is to book income abroad and to invest abroad, which we don't want. But the more that you move to a worldwide system, the bigger the incentive is to have, run investment through a foreign chartered corporation instead of a U.S. chartered corporation. That could be an inversion. It could be starting off. That's the one thing you wouldn't want to do. Right. You would not want to have a U.S. charter and be doing all of your income abroad. That would be the tax unfavorable. The, the tax system would treat you very punitively there. Uh, it, um, I mean, <coughs> excuse me. A lot of people have said, I mean, maybe somewhat in jest, that today if you're starting up a new business as a corporation and you think that at some point you may be operating abroad, even though you're starting off in the United States, that it's arguably legal malpractice if the lawyers who are advising you don't tell you to get a foreign charter. Because, of course, once you have the U.S. charter, you're subject to U.S. tax on your worldwide income, although you get deferral on the foreign tax credit. Uh, and if you ever try to switch that charter back to an inversion transaction, of course, you're going to be faced with those restrictions that Congress and the IRS have imposed. But on the other hand, if you simply start from day one with a foreign charter, despite the fact that you're actually located in the United States, then, of course, you're, you're fine. So we, we just face this constant trade-off between distorting where the companies are chartered and distorting where the profits are booked and where the investment occurs. And so I think that some type of hybrid approach really is sensible as long as you're within that framework. Now, I mean, Eric and I have a plan that, of course, would move the tax uh, on corporate income to the shareholder level. And instead of basing the tax on where the profits are booked or where the investment occurs or where the corporation is chartered, set all that aside and instead base it on where the shareholder lives. But obviously that's a more sweeping reform than what Jeff is trying to do here. And so I think within the context of what Jeff's doing, this, this, makes, uh, this makes sense. You know, FACA I think is being implemented. And uh, for the personal income tax system, of course, we do tax Americans on their worldwide income. And so you need something like FACA. And there are information sharing agreements being reached. And uh, yeah, I think it's become much harder to evade taxes by, by stashing money overseas, although it certainly hasn't become impossible. Next question. with the National Foreign Trade Council, and I want to go back to two things. A, all of the storm and drong about trade, and B, Henry's observation about 82 years and not caring about people like me. It seems to me there's a close connection. The reality is, and I'm not an economist, but I've taken economics courses. The first law is the law of free trade. But that's not widely accepted. And the reason, it seems, again, in the current political discourse, is what about people like me who have been screwed either by technological change or trade-related change? So in the context of taxation, do you have any ideas for addressing that issue? People like me who are displaced by change as a result of innovation. Um, yes, but not necessarily in the tax field. Let me try and address that question. Um, I think free trade is working its wonders. Um, 
you know, what free trade promises is that by uh, free exchange that more people will be made better off. Uh, but what we're seeing is for the first time that a lot of the winners from free trade live in other political jurisdictions, whereas the losers from free trade, while not a majority, are disproportionately concentrated within the wealthier political jurisdictions. So that did not happen 100 years ago when the bulk of people in wealthy countries were themselves unwealthy, so that when you were pulled from a farm to a factory, you personally were receiving the benefit of being given a machine to work. Uh, now the people who are given simple machines and being pulled from farm to factory overseas, the people who are in de facto competition are disproportionately concentrated in wealthy countries, so you have a political problem, not an economic problem. I think what needs to be done is not throw up walls with free trade. I think what needs to be done is a thoroughgoing understanding that with 15 to 30 percent of your population is going to be dislocated because of this, that that's a political problem. And the politics of it will interfere with the economics of free trade if you don't address it. How should you address it? You should address it by making low-income support programs more work support programs than work avoidance programs. I'm thinking particularly of Social Security disability, where you can be called disabled if you're 55 or older and have only a high school degree because you're considered your residual functional capacity is insufficient to gain sufficient remuneration. So you're deemed disabled. Well, that takes you out of the workforce. Um, I think our trade adjustment packages are, are um, insufficient. They're insufficient because they too narrowly circumscribe the scope of when you're affected and they're too limited in what sort of aid they give. Uh, I think that needs to be changed. I think we need to understand that there's a global market for labor and it could very well be that you can be dislocated without having direct competition from a direct competitor being the cause of the dislocation. That mitigates in favor of some form of wage subsidy. I also think that what you need to do is recognize that we have disincentives to move. Uh, it's quite clear from data that people who have higher levels of skill and earn more are willing to move in pursuit of new jobs, while people with lower level of skills uh, do not if they're native-born. Why is that? Well, it's because we have income support programs that can make them, allow them to make a go of it in places that don't offer many jobs. You can make a go of it, even though it's not terribly uh, encouraging, uh, on Medicare and food stamps and part-time work and other programs uh, in places that I call job deserts. We should have, uh, we should have move to work programs in part of all of our income support programs to both provide information and incentive for low-skilled native-born Americans to move to the places where work is being generated. You are never going to get lots of jobs coming back to the upper part of Michigan or to Appalachia. The people there who are low-skilled should be moving to where jobs do get generated, North Carolina, Texas, Florida, Arizona. And as long as we have a system that says, you don't have to move, or we're not even going to encourage you to move, and you can live here disgruntled and unhappy because you've been dislocated, and it'll go on to the federal tax bill. We will continue to have political problems and a growing government, and that won't be good for anyone. Uh, any other questions? Go ahead. Ted Cruz's uh, flat tax has been characterized as, as a simple flat tax. But I've been hearing uh, comments about uh, the business side of it, and I don't quite understand it fully. Is it really two taxes in one or one 
tax with another tax folded into it. Could could the uh, panel just briefly sure mention yeah. something about yeah. that, please? Yeah. He, he is proposing to eliminate the corporate income tax and payroll taxes. He's retaining the individual income tax, but at a much lower rate, a single 10% rate. And he's introducing a new form of business tax, which he doesn't want to call it this, but which is really a, a value-added tax. It's a tax on purchases, less sales of businesses. It is administered in a slightly different way than the European value-added taxes, but economically it's exactly equivalent. Yes, 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 yes. There is a VAT and there is an individual income tax and a 10% flat tax. I have a question related to that. Um, so when I look at this as a political measure, I see Ted Cruz telling Americans, I'm going to eliminate a 15.3% tax on your wages. And then the way he's defined the business tax means that he's going to reinstitute a 16% tax hidden from their view on those same wages. Is that not in fact what's happening? And given that taxes under the payroll tax, the large share of that, the FICA tax, 12.4%, is limited, you know, goes away at $117,000 a year for an individual, but his business tax does not. Is this not de facto raising the payroll tax and eliminating the cap, which is in fact what conservatives have opposed on both measures for decades? It is that plus adding a tax on business cash flow, yeah. which is which is not negligible. It's 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 not as big as a corporate income tax, but it's not negligible. So yes, it's those, it's those two things. Yeah. Hi, I'm um, a nurse midwife, and I run a not-for-profit, and I'm listening to what is this going to mean to us in the not-for-profit world? Is it going to mean anything better or anything worse? Because to me, I look around and I see more and more not-for-profits picking up on those pieces that you discussed, Mr. Olson, or Dr. Olson, as the case may be. <laughs> but I, ju I just wanted to say that um, when you talk about business, I think in, into many people's heads come uh, the General Electrics and, the, and even um, you know, all the, the new technology com companies and so forth. But um, healthcare is a business too. And um, I came here after getting a MacArthur Fellowship to prove that nurse midwives could reduce the negative outcomes of low-income people. And we've done that here in Ward 5. We have done it and the Urban Institute has studied us. And what comes out of their studies according to the amount of funds that we save is that if all Medicaid births in this country, and there are more than two million a year, were, were done on our model, which is really a relationship model where the midwives make relationships and care about the families and so forth and so on, it could save more than two billion dollars a year. Now, do you think that makes me any friends? How how can I use this information to? What's your question? My my question is, when for the not for profits who are trying to pick up these pieces that are not being picked up by the government or picked up to satisfaction, and you mentioned that, how can we make our work more apparent and make it affect these some of these tax plans? I don't. Maybe I'm just really ignorant about how you go about making a tax plan, but. 
But all I know is that we're working very, very hard. We're not only improving the costs, but we're improving the lives of the people who are are motivated by the way they're treated and so forth. So, oh. so I I would just like to know how you think this work might help those of us in the not-for-profit world. Uh, so, tax policy and nonprofits. Anyone? Well, I guess I I mean I think that. The plan could be bad news in one respect. It probably would reduce the overall incentives for charitable giving to some extent simply through the lower marginal rates. I mean, it would be a slight effect because the marginal rates are not going that much lower. But, I mean, obviously, if you're in a 39.6% bracket, then a dollar of charitable contributions today gives you $39.6 tax savings. If you are in a 33% bracket, then it's only $0.33. Cents. So. You can raise the taxes or you can try to cut down the costs of the, the well, that would be beyond the scope of the plan, but the, uh, just to clarify one thing, um, the, the charitable giving um, uh, exemption would be retained um, under the tax. As, uh, uh, what Alan, Alan was correctly noting that you may have less incentive to take it because you, your taxes would be dropped somewhat. Um, but nevertheless, the, just to make, be clear, the mortgage interest deduction for one home and the charitable giving deduction would both be retained under the Main Street tax plan. All right. It uh, looks like we are uh, out of time. Um, all right. So uh, thanks for coming, and um, hope you enjoyed the uh, panel. <laughs>